I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters Legal Podcast. This week on the show, we're taking a look back at some of the key themes, topics, and moments from our first 70 episodes. Each episode focuses on a different topic playing a central role in the future of the profession, and today's show is a meaningful one. In it, we will revisit the series of interviews we conducted in the wake of the death of George Floyd and the subsequent protests that shone a spotlight on systemic racism, police misconduct, and the need for lasting reform. From episode 52, Raphael Davis-Williams, Director of Equity and Inclusion at ACLU of Ohio. And, and as, as, you, as you pointed out, Raphael, you've, you've dedicated so much of your life's work to changing society for the, the better. It's really been something you've, been, you've spent your, your life's work on. We're, over the course of the last two weeks, seeing this really dramatic turning point or maybe boiling over uh, in, the, in the United States and, and worldwide uh, in response to the, the deaths of George Floyd and so many others before him. Uh, at the hands of police, but also the the manifestation of the uh, systematic and institutional uh, injustice and inequities we see in our society. Can you talk about what it's been like from your perspective, who's been on the front lines of this fight against systemic racism for a long, for so long to to see what's happened in the last few weeks and 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 what you think it all means? Uh, sure, um, Jack. It has been. Um... A, a real range of emotions. And um, I, I have to say, um, I, I am on, at one point I'm heartened by uh, what's going on, but I, ha- I have to tell you how painful, and it is painful, and I don't think um, many people really fully appreciate, unless um, you are a, and I, and I, and I don't mean to, um, what I'm trying to say is uh, there is a uniqueness about being black in America. Um, And so I do often because of, you know, the job that I have, I include people of color because I know all people of color are marginalized to some extent, but it is unique to black people. And it is even more unique to black men. And I I will tell you, I have not. Uh, I know you guys kind of keep up with the with the news down here, uh, but I have not watched another black man get lynched, or shot, or murdered, or killed since uh, Walter Scott, which was about four or five years ago, who was a black man who had been stopped by a police officer and was had a warrant and took off running and he was shot in the back and then the police officer tried to put a gun in his hand and do all those things. I, I, I don't want, and since then, so I have not seen the Ahmad Arbery sh- shooting. I have not seen uh, George Floyd, the, the George Floyd video, and I haven't seen any of it because I don't want to watch another black man die at the hands of a white person for no reason. And so this has been hard. Um, but what I will say is the uh, feelings that a lot of people are having now it does feel different, and I'm not sure why. Um, and frankly, I get, a, even in now as we're talking about this, I get a little knot in my stomach because uh, I'm afraid that if this is not the moment that we actually start making systemic, lasting, permanent change, then there is no moment. It, it, there is no moment where we will finally stop the 
the internal uh, systemic governmental um, levers that are crushing black men. And I get nervous, even as we are in a moment now where we have a lot of people who are supporting us. I've seen protests internationally from Germany and London and in, in uh, Canada and all over the world. And I get concerned that if this isn't the moment that things start to actually change, I don't believe a moment exists. And that's, 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 uh, that's concerning. From episode 53, Tiffany Graves, pro bono counsel at Bradley. And against the backdrop of the pandemic, we obviously have George Floyd's death and the ensuing protests and and riots and um, the largest uh, movement we've seen in in recent memory, maybe in history, uh, protesting systemic racism and, and injustice. Uh, you're, you're based in Mississippi, which is uh, the, the real South. Uh, and I'm, I'm perspective, uh, or, or I'm sorry, I'm curious what your perspective is um, on what's happening in the South in particular as it relates to George Floyd's death. You know, outside of COVID-19, um, you know, I have, of course, been grieving with so many, um, with the, the families of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey and just so many others that we know and don't know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, who've been wrongfully and frankly, inexplicably taken from us. Um, and this has been just a really incredible hard few weeks for so many of us. And I have personally been challenged um, with all of it. Um, and it's, it's just been, it's been tough. It's, it's been tough to concentrate and focus and, and frankly do the work that I, that I feel so compelled and fulfilled by. Um, so it's, but it's especially been a hard time for, for the black community, um, without question. Um, you know, we are frankly tired of asking when enough is going to be enough. Um, you know, we're, we're tired of hearing our black men scream, I can't breathe. Um, you know, certainly George Floyd is not the first time that we've heard that. Um, mm. And we're tired of feeling like our lives don't matter in a country where we have just as much right to be here and our lives should matter just as much as everyone else. I, Stephanie Boyce, the Deputy Vice President of the Law Society of England and Wales. Over the past few weeks, the topics of systemic racism, police misconduct and justice reform have been at the forefront of social discussion uh, and rightly so. Most of our audience is based in North America, as I mentioned earlier. Um, can you set, shed some light on what things have been like in in Britain? And, and I'm also curious, I, I know you did some of your schooling in the U.S., um, maybe some of the macro level differences you might see as it relates to these issues in the U.S. versus Britain. Mm. I mean, Britain certainly has been showing its support for Black Lives Matter. Uh, movement with gatherings, marches, and outpourings of shared experiences and support, uh, and support for the calls for change um, that are taking place in the US and around the world. Um, One could not but but be touched um, uh, by uh, the abhorrent uh, uh, tragedy around George Floyd's death, which caused outrage and empathy, um, wherever you are, wherever you are in the world. 
Um, but what that did was absolutely mobilize and, 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 and mobilize people here from all backgrounds into speaking out against injustice and inequality, from gatherings showing support to high profile figures speaking out and sharing experiences. You would have seen perhaps Lewis Hamilton, our uh, most successful Formula One racing, uh, racing driver, you know, football players, you know, uh, uh, speaking out um, as they call for further review and access on justice reform to ensure equality before and within the law for all. The reality in Britain is, is that if you happen to be black, you are perhaps more likely not to have gone to university. You are more likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system one in five times more likely to be tasered by the police um, and more likely to be or come from a disadvantaged background. Um, it's important that we all, you know, um, and I think what the Black Lives Matter uh, movement has shown is that enough is enough. It's time for concerted action. Um, and certainly uh, in terms of uh, what's gone on uh, in America and, 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 you know, how that compares um, whilst perhaps we don't have uh, a policeman putting his, uh, his, his knee on, on, on our necks, you know, the difficulty is, is that where people don't feel that they are treated equitably and fairly, um, that is perhaps the, the two things, that the, the commonality that binds people together. This gives us an, a, an optimum chance to, um, to affect change, real change, uh, and start to move the discussion forward, but to take real action. And certainly from the legal profession's uh, perspective, that covers, as I say, not only the solicitor's profession, the, the, the barrister profession, the judiciary and so forth, because our judiciary is not diverse here. And there have been a number of initiatives over the years to try and increase diversity amongst the judiciary, because it must be that we must reflect the society we seek to serve. Um, and so uh, uh, it is, you know, this gives us a real opportunity to step up those concerted efforts to increase diversity and inclusion. From episode 54, Andre Robert Lee, director, producer, professor, and keynote speaker at Point well, Made Learning. It sounds like a, a really eye-opening exercise. And as you point out, there's systemic racism manifests itself in ways both big and small. And it, it feels like so much of the the discourse that's happening right now is around this idea of opening up people's eyes to the fact that simply not being a racist is not enough. It's about being anti-racist and about understanding yeah. the kind of structural racism that exists and being cognizant of it, but also when you're, when you have the opportunity acting against it and, mm -hmm. and being able to speak up. And it, it, it sounds like this way you have of working with organizations also helps build the comfort level and having the hard discussions, which you won't get from just passively consuming a, a webinar that was delivered to you by HR. And can you maybe talk a little bit more about that, about the conversations you see start happening and, and what you've seen happen in a room when people start getting comfortable with those conversations, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which are That's deeply right. uncomfortable to have without, without question. We walk in the door and we say, get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, and your what we find is our approach to it works. Like we we don't we 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 aggressively work to not use what I call the phraseology. You know, the the words are very important. They're very true. Microaggressions, feeling triggered, all that is very real. Mm -hmm. We don't use that in our language. 
and in our approach to the conversation and the work. We try and have to be very conversational, be very intellectual, and dig right into the, the, the root. Because what I honestly have seen, I've seen people who know all the words, but don't have any depth behind it. Hmm. You know, and we're trying to get to that deeper level because we're thinking about change. You know, one, this was this, we, we do an exercise called at the end of our, under this, end of this five week workshop, we do an exercise called start, stop, change. So you studied all this work, you study all this material. What are you going to start doing when it comes to being an anti-racist individual person, worker? What are you going to stop doing? that you do now and what can you change? And I'll share an example that stays with me to this day. An attorney at one of my sessions said, you know, I, was, I came into this thinking I'm a good guy. I don't have anything to learn. You know, I've been mm -hmm. wonderful. I give, I donate, you know, I, I spend my time helping people. But I'm, I'm seeing by unpacking some of this history, I have a lot more to learn. Um, and something I can, I think I can do right now and this is so wonderful. And I, this is the message I share, I share as much as I can. He said, every summer I get interns. I get people who want to learn about legal, the legal world. And it's easy for me to say, hey, yeah, John, send your son David over. Come on in, David. You can work at this firm. I could turn to institutions where children don't have access to our, our, our white shoe. Is that I get it right? White shoe, right? Yeah. White shoe firm. That's right. A yeah. white shoe, high level firm. And I could go to them and say, who in your institution wants to learn about law? Like, that's it right there. Like, and David, David, his friend's son will be fine. That's not taking something from him. That is opening the door for someone else that had no idea that this kind of law firm exists. And I, I said, yes, that's it right there. That's the moment. That's, that's the change that we can see. I think diversity hires, inclusion programs, all of that is very important, but they don't mean anything if the folks who are making decisions, who are influencing how the community is shaped, who are designing policy and laws, if they can't within their hearts and minds shift and change, we'll just have repetition. repetition. We'll have more people color in space, but we'll have the same exact problems that existed. Jenny Biev Jones-Wright, Executive Director at Community Advocates for Just and Moral Governance. Right. And, and I'd love for you to to speak to, to, to that as well. And, and obviously you, you couldn't have anticipated maybe how relevant uh, your organization would, would be just uh, a few days after officially launching it and, and a few months after launching it uh, with, the, with the current climate around uh, racial inequity and, and systemic injustice. How, how does that factor into MOGO's mission? And, and I'd love for you to comment also uh, issues you think the legal profession as a whole should be be thinking about? And if there's a call to action, what does that call to action look like? So what we've seen in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing events is that words alone are not enough. And I describe it as a rerun of shows that we've seen many times. If we look at what happened after th these episodes of school shootings, we had members of Congress and other elected officials not 
do anything about the school shootings. They gave these symbolic gestures. They gave their thoughts and their prayers, but there was no action to back it up. There was nothing that they did that would actually prevent the next school shooting from happening. And my fear is that we will not seize this moment. And I use the word moment very intentionally because America is very fickle. And just as we were inundated with news about COVID-19 day after day, 24 hours a day, the coverage has now shifted to the Black Lives Matter movement. And just that fast, we forgot that we were still under a pandemic that is life-threatening. So much to the point that cases are rising yet again. And we've shifted the perspectives to the Black Lives Matter movement. And just as fast as we've shifted there, our attention can go away to the next quote unquote hot issue. And so it's not that I believe that Black Lives Matter is simply something that is momentary, but it is something that we have to pay attention to and actually give actions to and not just words. I firsthand seen things come out of the city attorney's office of San Diego, the district attorney's office of San Diego, and really it's not movement. It's not progressing us forward and moving us forward to the reforms that we actually need. And so with this particular moment, with seeing how many people of different races, cultures, creeds, and belief have taken to the streets and have demanded that there be an honoring of Black lives, that this actually translates into something. And so for MOGO, our work is deeply embedded in achieving racial justice. Our work is embedded in having social justice. And we recognize that the work cannot be done if we do not recognize that this means acknowledging racism in all of our systems. There's racism that is rooted in our healthcare systems, our education systems, our legal systems, political systems, all of our systems in America. And we really have to acknowledge that first before we can move on. There's been Studies after studies in San Diego, for example, where SDSU in an independent study in 2016 laid out there that racial profiling happens. And our city council said, thank you for giving us that information. We accept your findings that there's racial profiling that happens, that Black people and Latinos and Asian American Pacific Islanders are stopped, searched, and even arrested at higher rates than their white counterparts, and they're less likely to have contraband. That's the case of African-American drivers in San Diego. And yet the city council did not move to approve any of the recommendations that were part of that study. We fast forward to last December and a study by Campaign Zero using the data from the San Diego Police Department and the San Diego Sheriff's Department showed that black drivers are stopped at a rate of 219% higher than their white counterparts. And so I'm asking where are the solutions? Because these have been things that people of color have been talking about and urging people in positions of power to take action on. And all of our demands have fallen on deaf ears. And so I'm hoping that at this moment, we actually seize this moment that confronts us to actually put into place much needed reforms and changes in our policing and in our criminal justice system as a whole. 
From episode 55, Andrea Alexander, New York City attorney and social change advocate. And what does that deeper work look like to you when we look at the kind of conversations that need to be happening, the kind of change that need to be happening? Um, I do think there's a problem of the window dressing type courses that we we see, the workshops, the the online courses you take for half an hour and get some some checkbox that obviously are not going to be the catalysts of of real change. Um, what's it look like to go deeper and and actually have conversations or have education at, at law firm levels that will will drive some of the shift we need to see? You know, that's a tough one because, you know, I truly do believe to some extent that, you know, a part of it's going to be the individual will to see change, right? What are individuals doing when they go home? What are they talking to their children about? What are they talking to their families about? Um, because it's not going to happen in isolation. You're not going to turn off your diversity radar, you know, when you leave the office. It's something I think, especially as black people, it's something we carry and walk around with every day. So I do think what companies need to do is to continue the conversation. It cannot end when a quota is met. It cannot end when the number of senior leadership is at a desired amount. Um, and then that representation gives comfort. Um, I think we need to, we'll see it when we both see the physical and the visual uh, presence of other people outside mm -hmm. of the traditional norm. Um, and it'll be more, you know, it'll be bringing in, if you're going to have workshops, the right people. It's going to, you know, a lot of companies are going to start thinking about and talking about allyship, right? So we've talked about diversity, but we've never really encouraged the other or the, the dominant group um, from being a part of the conversation or requiring them to be a part of the conversation to, to tackle, you know, the biases that they're bringing in, um, the biases that we, you know, carry with us. And so hopefully it is something that companies are then pushing their white employees to really wake up and think about so that the burden isn't bared, you know, we don't bear it just on the, the, the people of color who are doing the education, but that companies are truly, um, being revolutionary in the type of workshops and trainings that they have, that they're not these, you know, boilerplate checkbox. I went to a diversity talk. I learned about unconscious bias. You know, we all have it and make people right. feel like, you know, I guess it's problem the niceties, right? Problem solved <laughs> and you're not the problem and we all yeah. have this, but truly are digging deep and saying, no, while we may all have prejudices, some prejudices get other people killed. Some prejudices keep people from getting promotions. Some prejudices affect people's life livelihood. Um, and those are the ones we really, you know, that's what we really need to talk about. It is not, it is not pretty, but if we can truly get there, I think we're, we're going to get the best out of, you're going to get the best out of your staff, out of your teams and out of your company. I mean, diversity is now going to be looked at and young people are going to want to know you know, it's more than the hashtag, it's more than the black screen, and it's more than Black Lives Matter, we believe in you. Um, we may not all agree on what that looks like, and, and obviously I'm having a hard time even trying to fathom what all that would entail, but I think it's going to be a feeling, and it's going to be something people are going to know, okay, that company is living up to the hash, it's living up to beyond, you know, more than just the hashtag. From episode 53, Tiffany Graves, Pro Bono Counsel at Bradley. 
Tiffany, you talked about doing the outward facing and inward facing work to drive that that change. When we think about that in the context of the the legal industry and the the justice system, uh, obviously the the spotlight is on the police, and there's massive reform that needs to to happen there. But I'm I'm curious when you look at the rest of the justice system and maybe even the legal industry, the way law firms operate, can you comment on if we're taking an inward look at this industry where there is systemic racism that needs addressed or what you've you've experienced firsthand or secondhand in terms of uh, discrimination or structural racism that is almost embedded in the way the system works that you think we need to, to take a look at? Sure. Um, and I'm at my second law firm. Um, so I'm, I'm in that culture. You know, I'm, I'm in that culture every day. Um, and I saw a, a recent legal industry study um, that said 1.9% of law firm partners are black. So that's less than 2%. Uh, 0.75, 0.75% are black women. 0.75. <laughs> that's a problem. Um, what confidence would be given to a, a young black female law student um, who is aspiring to become partner at a law firm someday by hearing that statistic? Um, it, it wouldn't instill much confidence in me at all. Um, representation matters and it matters everywhere. And it certainly matters within our law firms. Um, inclusion matters. It's not just having a sea of diverse faces. You know, it's making sure that those diverse attorneys who come into your firms are having meaningful experiences, are having the opportunity to engage with, a, uh, with clients, are having the opportunity to engage with the decision makers within your firm, are having the opportunity to engage with work that will put them on a path of partnership, if that's what they aspire to do, or leadership within the firm. Um, so it's, it's so much more than just diversity. Um, sometimes we, we focus so much on that, that we lose the inclusion piece that is also so critical. It's not enough to recruit diverse attorneys into our law firms. We got to do everything we can to retain them. Um, right. And I've, I've seen far too often, um, you know, lawyers of color, diverse attorneys who start at firms and start strong, um, don't have the support that they started with. They lose it over time because people get busy with other things and think, oh, he's doing okay, she's doing okay. Um, and that truly impacts their legal career and their legal trajectory. Um, firms have to do more. Um, you know, when you're giving meaningful work and opportunities to engage internally and externally, it puts you on a better and stronger and more positive path uh, towards success at these firms. And that's the types of things that we've got to look at. It also requires clients who insist that diverse attorneys be put on their cases. Uh, and I can speak to this personally. Uh, when I worked at a firm, you know, almost a decade ago, um, you know, there was a client who came in, a major car company, I won't mention their name, um, but he came in and he said, I want Tiffany on my cases. Um, and he said, and let me be clear about this. I don't want her just in name only on my cases. I want her writing the motions, attending the hearings, going to trial. And if I don't see that happening, you will lose this work. That's what it takes. It doesn't just mean a list of attorneys and you have Tiffany Graves, African-American, check the box. 
How is Tiffany, Tiffany meaningfully engaged in the work? Is she a part of these cases? Is she a part of, 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 being, of, of my being a part of the work of your firm? Those types of things. That's the stuff that matters. Jenny Biev Jones-Wright, the Executive Director of Community Advocates for Just and Moral Governance. As well. Um, Absolutely. When you, when you think about the trajectory that you want to hopefully see realized, uh, and you think about where we might be able to get a, as a legal industry and as a justice system in five to 10 years, what, what does that look, look like to you? I, I'd love your, your vision of, you know, if, if we do have the kind of impact and drive the kind of change that we, we hope to, what does the, the system look like in five or 10 years from now? So as a system, and also as individuals who are involved in the system, because we really do have to take ownership of this. Yes, we have systemic rules and policies and things that transpire, but we are also people with choices. And so my answer would be the same for the system as a whole, as well as the individuals inside of the system. We have to really act with compassion, concern, and care. And that's the key. I want to see more compassion, concern, and care in our legal systems in five to 10 years. I don't believe that restorative justice has been given the credit or the resources that is needed for us to really move forward as a society that understands that we shouldn't be incarcerating at the level that we are incarcerating, that our young people really do deserve not just a second chance, but many chances because we understand the science behind brain development. And we've been so quick to just say that someone has made a mistake and that person needs to be locked up. And that's not the answer. We haven't solved our problems and we will never solve our problems through over-incarceration. And this is where we've seen ourselves. I think if we've learned anything from this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic, is that we don't need to warehouse people, that we can still be a safe society. We can still release people who are pending criminal incarceration or pending criminal prosecutions and let them have their day in court if they're not a true danger to society so that they can still be with their loved ones and not face these inhumane conditions. I think we've learned from COVID-19 that bail is not the answer. I mean, all of these things that we were told had to be because this is the way it is, we were finding out that it's not true. I mean, if you look back at 2018, the headlines read that California was finally getting rid of the bail industry and that we had dismantled this bail system. And two years later, we were operating the exact same way. But then COVID-19 hit and we had a mandate from the Judicial Council of California saying, no, for these offenses, which was the majority of defenses, people had to be released on zero dollar bill. And our world hasn't gone topsy-turvy. Our crime rates haven't skyrocketed and we're okay. And so we're really kind of learning that all of these things that we've been fighting against as reformers that we were told we need in place in order to stay safe, that it's not true. And I want us to continue down that line that we don't have to accept what the status quo has given us as what has to be because we can dream and we can reimagine a better society 
where we're not just warehousing people for the sake of warehousing them. And we don't have this school to prison pipeline. I mean, there's so many other things that I can point to, but I really hope that after this pandemic that we never return to the same place that we've returned. If we look at civic engagement and how we conduct our city council meetings and even court hearings, people have more access now because they're willing to allow for us to do things virtually. And I hope we never return to where we have to come down to City Hall during a work day and take time off so that the working person can't have their voice heard at City Council. I think that there's so much to be learned about this pandemic. And this is why I always say that even in the middle of a crisis, we can find the opportunity. And we found so many opportunities with COVID-19 and also in the wake of George Floyd's murder. From episode 52, Raphael Davis-Williams, Director of Equity and Inclusion at ACLU of Um, Ohio. Raphael, to conclude our conversation, it's been such a a powerful conversation and I appreciate the perspectives you've been able to offer. We we talked earlier about the, whether we're at a tipping point or not. And if we're not at a tipping point of change, we seem to at least at a tipping point of awareness where, you know, the United States and the world at large uh, is more aware of these issues than, than ever. If we want to translate that into change, what would you like to see happen next? Especially to my white male friends, my, my cisgendered straight white male friends. Um, what you can do is use your privilege. Use the the privilege that this country has said you have, whether you think you have it or not, even if you're in the the most awful poor situation, I can guarantee you put a black man in that same situation and his situation is worse. So when I say use your privilege, that means when you're sitting in your company staff meeting and you hear that off color comment and you think to yourself, Oh, it was that was cringeworthy. We've all been there, right? I mean, you you hear that and you go, Ooh, yeah. Um, don't just do that. Say something in that moment. Like that, that's really not cool. You know, in fact, that's the reason uh, George Floyd was, was brutalized and murdered the way he was, because people don't have value. They don't value Black lives. They don't value Black men. Um, so I say to not just, and I say that specifically to white men, because in this country, in America, there is no higher pinnacle of demographic uh, you don't get higher on the demographic ladder than a cisgendered straight white male, it's, unless you're wealthy too. That, that just, you, know, you don't get any, there isn't anyone who has more influence, more sway than you. And I would implore all those people to start using their voice and their privilege to say this is not going, and we've seen it. We've seen some of this. We've seen Tom Brady and, and Aaron Rodgers. And, you, know, we were, you know, I don't know how much, you know, football you guys are. Uh, are I, I know uh, enough to recognize those names. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, I, when, you, when you are a wealthy, um, um, you know, in this, in this country, you know, voting rights started with land-owning wealthy, uh, land-owning white man. Uh, right now, start using your, use your voice uh, on our behalf, and I will say this while having the opportunity, um, this is not the time to have your friends who are people of color initiate and carry and do all of these things. We can't because for, for more reasons. One, we're traumatized. <laughs> and even if we weren't, if we had the power to change things, don't you think we would have? <laughs> you think we right. really are just you know, kind of sitting around like, yeah, we could do better, but yeah, we, we're just going to sit this. 
you know, the people who have the ability to make a difference use that so don't don't be aware when you do that thanks for joining us on daily matters today a podcast from clio rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode daily matters is produced by andrew booth sam rosenthal and Derek bolin and hosted by yours truly jack newton Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 